Hey, so we are in week three of the series uh, Rules for Christmas, uh, where we've talked about uh, two rules so far out of order uh, based on the movie Elf. There's the Elf Code, which is based loosely on uh, the real St. Nicholas's, like, guy from Turkey, 300 AD guys, three rules for Christmas. Uh, And the first one being to treat every day like Christmas. Uh, And we talked about that in week one and and, uh, how even in the uh, moments in which your expectations aren't met, right? The traditions don't get actually accomplished. People don't show up when they're supposed to. And there's all these reasons around Christmas, you know, to not celebrate Christmas that we can still treat every day like Christmas because God reigns. That's what we talked about in week one. Uh, and then last week, you didn't know this. If you were here, we had our Jingle Jam service, which is the first time we've ever done something like that. It was a family service. Everybody was in here together. It was wild. It was crazy. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that actually speaks to rule number three, which was the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear, which you all did a fantastic job if you were here singing. I was mainly in the back and I heard you still singing. So that was a lot of fun and dancing and and having a good time. So hopefully we'll bring that back next year. Today, we are going to circle back to the middle and talk about rule number two, rule number two. Um, And to start that, we're gonna talk about your neighbors because some of you, you talk about your neighbors. You may not talk to your neighbors about themselves, but you talk to your spouse or your friends or your family about your neighbors, regardless of, Uh, where you live. Either you're an apartment or a house. Uh, You can even include your past neighbors in this as well as your present neighbors. Specifically, I want to talk to you about how you engage with and respond to the strange neighbor. (laughs) Took a second to process. Okay, yeah, that neighbor, you know, the difficult neighbor. Maybe you're thinking, Taylor, there's so many. Which one do I pick? Well, you pick one, okay? Um, It's the neighbor that, you know, you kind of look out your window or you see them driving up and your face doesn't go, hey, neighbor. It kind of goes like, what you doing over there? (laughs) Kind of look, okay? Now, I know what you're thinking, and that is, Taylor, Christians, we're good Christians. We don't judge those outside the church, but you do. You do. You've had thoughts like, what is, he, what is he doing over there? What, what's she doing over there? What do they do over there? You've had that thought, haven't you? You've had that thought of pretty sure what's ever happening is not exactly good. Don't know what it is, but I don't think it's good. Or you've looked over there at, at your neighbor and you've thought to yourself, I question their parenting style a little bit, right? I question their finances, okay? You know, how do they get that? Where does that come from, okay? Uh, how about... Uh, you know, if they play loud music or they don't mow their lawn, you know, whatever it may be, you sit there and you think to yourself, why? What's going on? And if Santa had a naughty list, you're pretty sure that would be the neighbor that's on it for something. You don't know what, but they would be. And I get it, you know, Taylor, I I wouldn't, I really wouldn't do something like that. Um, And I, I like you all. You all are very nice people. Even the people that in the room that I don't know, I think you're very nice people, but you have those thoughts. And it may not even be, you may have a perfect neighborhood. Maybe you live in a perfect neighborhood. Fantastic. I'm really happy for you. But then you have work neighbors, right? You have neighbors at that group you go to or that thing you attend or your kids attend. And there's neighbors there too, right? And in those neighbors, there are those neighbors where you just... What are you doing, you know? You, th- you have those thoughts. But then there's also the flip side, okay? So think about how you feel about that neighbor. The other one is the fact that we can act 
the same way. Like, we're not that different. We can be sometimes that neighbor. We can act the same way. You can, get, let me explain. You live feet, feet from some of these people. You work feet from some of these people all day. You, for some people, you spend more time with these people than you spend time with your own family, for that matter, okay? But you, and you pretend that everything is good in your life with your neighbors, that your life is mostly together, that if Santa does really have a naughty and nice list, that you would be on the nice list. That's how you act. But in reality, it's not that pretty all the time, right? That, that we can be that neighbor because we too can have, you know, some financial struggles sometime. You might be in the middle of that right now. Some of us, um, we, we can drink a little bit too much or smoke a little bit too much, right? We can have marriage strains. We can have in-law problems. We can have parenting issues. We can yell at our kids. We can be the neighbors that are sitting there questioning our value and our worth in the world. We can envy others. We can covet our neighbor's stuff and what they have. And we can do things that we know we shouldn't be doing, that if we believed in God and we believed in Christianity, we would, would qualify probably as a sinner, would come really, really close to it. That we are, in fact, those imperfect, questionable people as well, especially around Christmas, because I don't know about you, but sometimes Christmas doesn't exactly bring out the best parts of ourselves. And the reason I know this, and the reason you kind of know that this is true, is that you would live a different life. You're, you would live differently if your home, think about this, if your home had no curtains or windows. Think about how you would live. If your neighbors could hear what you say or what you yell or what you do. And I know immediately some of you are thinking, well, I certainly dress differently if my home had no curtains or windows. But taking this on a more serious note, you would also behave differently, right? I bet you would parent differently if your neighbors could hear how you parent. I bet you would treat your spouse differently and you wouldn't talk so or discuss or have those discussions so loudly as you do right now. I wonder if you wouldn't make different financial decisions, if you wouldn't consume that thing you're not really supposed to be consuming quite as much if your neighbors could hear the slurred speech that you have when you do. Heavens, you might even pray more if your neighbors could hear what you're doing. Because after all, you told them that you're a Jesus follower, that you're a Christian, and so somehow you'd have to live, live that out. You may even read your Bible out loud. I don't know. Could get wild. Anyways, you would live differently. And the reason I know you would live differently is because when other people are watching you, you put on a better face than what's actually happening behind the curtains. And we all do it. I'm just as guilty of it. Is, hey, when the curtains are shut, we live a little differently than when they're open, just like those neighbors that make you frown. But we don't have to live like that. In fact, it's not very fun. It, it, there comes a point where we get a little tired. We wouldn't admit it. But we get tired of living with the curtains drawn on our life. It takes a lot more energy to live in fear that the neighbor next door may find out, to live in self-doubt, to live in guilt or shame versus living with peace or hope 
about your life and the world. And so I want to tell you a story today. And it's actually kind of a Christmas story. It's Nobody ever thinks it's a Christmas story, but it's kind of a Christmas story because it has some themes of Christmas in it. But it helps us to recognize why we live sometimes with the curtains so tightly drawn around ourselves. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. If, if you actually want to follow along in the Bible or you have the Bible app or, you know, that, that you take, physically take notes, whatever you do. Um, I'll also have it on the screen slash read it out loud to you. Um, it's one of the first stories that John has for us. It's John chapter 4. Uh, and John is a very unique gospel. I talk about this a lot, but, but every time we talk about John. But um, tradition says that he uh, was one of the few disciples that actually lived to uh, like an old age. He wasn't martyred for his Christian faith. Um, and so, and it kind of makes sense if, if John wrote John, he wrote it in a very unique way because probably by the time John wrote John, there were other versions of the accounts of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John probably had heard rumors that they were out there accounting for Jesus's life. And so he kind of took a different spin on Jesus, very poetic, very beautiful. And he, and he tries to illuminate some different parts of the other gospel writers don't do. And so in John chapter 4, one of these first stories, he talks about Jesus hanging out by a well in the middle of the day around noon or so. Uh, And it's a very famous story. If you grew up in church, you probably know this story all too well, but it is worth recounting and looking at from the lens of Christmas and, and in hopes to give us a rule that helps us to maybe not be so afraid to live a life with the curtains pulled and to not be so quick to judge those who are living a life that makes us frown a little bit, that's living a life where the curtains are drawn tightly. So we're going to read in chapter uh, 4 here. I'm just going to start in verse 4 because there's a lot to cover. Uh, We're going to kind of skip through this fairly quickly for the sake of time, Um, but you should definitely read it when you get home because there's so much in here. Um, So John 4, chapter 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So there's all these parallels and drawing back to the Old Testament, and I'd love to go into it, but uh, you'd probably fall asleep, and I would be so excited, and you'd be sleeping, and it just wouldn't work. So anyways, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour is noon, more or less, okay? And so um, he's, he's sitting there hanging out. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And when you read the Bible, it, um, they didn't have a lot of time. And they didn't write like we write today. Uh, they didn't have a lot of resources to write like we have today. And so they didn't expound like we expect them to, to expound in detail and give us a lot of context and the backstory and what was she thinking and what was he thinking and all that stuff. That's not how they wrote. And so sometimes we get a little lost. So to give you a little context, um, you, you think in terms of, or try to put yourself in the story. So uh, Jesus is sitting there in the middle of the day in Israel. More than likely, it's hot. It's not a great time to be out. And I know that's difficult to think about because it's not hot outside. Um, and so just remember those days in the summer when it's hot, humid, and you're sweating. Okay? That's this moment. And he's sitting there, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. So if you were the woman, what point of the day would you go and get water? Would you get water in the middle of the day, the first of the day, or the end of the day? If you are pulling probably some clay pots, carrying some clay pots, going to draw up a bunch of water. I mean, just even think of like a five-gallon bucket. It's filling two five-gallon buckets. So 10 gallons of water on each 
arm, when would you think it would be a great time of the day to go fill those buckets and walk them all the way back home? Yeah, sometime other than the middle of the day. Doesn't really matter. Just any time but the middle, the hottest time of the day. So why is she there? Then you think to yourself, and some of you know this, you already have the answer, because she's that neighbor. She's the neighbor that makes everybody go, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on there. Okay, I don't know how bad it is, but I'm pretty sure it's not good. She's that neighbor. And she's avoiding other people. She is drawing the curtains of her life by showing up at this point in the day, acting like no one can see, acting like it's perfectly normal to be going to the well at noon, but it's not. And she knows this, and everybody else knows this. And what they know is what we'll find out later in the story is that she has a very harsh relational history. She's on her fifth and a half husband She's living with a guy that's not even her husband and she's had five husbands prior to, okay? Not great. Not living a God-honoring life. Not living really a good life by any standards, whether you're Christian or not. Nobody sits there and says, that's a great life right there. She's in pain. She's broken and she's hurting. She's looking for things in men that they can't give her. And because she's doing that, she lives as an outcast, A woman in Samaria came to draw water from Jesus. So here's the context. And he says to her, get away from me. No, he doesn't say that at all. I know you're like, what? That's not the story I grew up with in Sunday school. Yeah, your Sunday school teachers lied. Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, he said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Probably the nicest act that anyone has directed her way in a long time. Because I'm betting you none of her neighbors would be going asking her for a cup of sugar. They would rather drive to the store and get some eggs than go ask her. Yet he honored her. Honored her. And the disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman responded to him and said, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And I love this. I love this moment. This is typical uh, human behavior. It's deflection. He asked me for a drink, and so I'm going to make this like an ethical issue or an ethnic issue. Not, hey, yeah, sure, I can absolutely get this for you, but it's immediate defense, It's immediate, what's your deal? What's your angle? What are you playing at? And Jesus goes right at the truth of this moment. He goes right at the fact that it's the hottest point of the day and she's avoiding the rest of the city of Sychar coming out here at this moment. That she is deflecting the deep problems in her life with a surface level issue of Jews and Samaritans don't associate. But that's not the real problem is it? But it's so typical human beings. You've done that before. So many times. We do it all the time. And so Jesus cuts through that truth kind of cryptically, and we're going to cover this real quick, and then we're going to circle back. And he says this, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Essentially, the point of this is, and we're going to circle back and do a deeper dive on this, but he said, this is not an ethnic issue. This is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. 
issue. They have some back and forth. And then the woman says to him, sir, all right, sir, give me the water so that I will not be thirsty nor come, come all this way to draw water. And his response to her is, go call your husband and come here. So she finally gives in and says, give me the water. And he says, go get your husband. And I got to think this was like one of those moments where you just kind of, the conversation paused. And if we were sitting there watching, we'd be like, what's going to happen? You know, she's going to freak out. Like, how's this going to go down? This was one of those pause moments. Because Jesus had drawn back the curtain of her life. He had opened the window to the life that she was hiding behind. And she's probably thinking thoughts that maybe you have had in the past when somebody maybe has called you out and not been wrong with the call out. It was, should I be offended? Should I be offended? But he's right. So can I be offended if he's right? Because he's not just right, he's really on. Like he's spot on. I've had five husbands. I don't even think my neighbors know that it's been five. They probably think one or two or three maybe, but not five. They don't even know how bad it is. And not only that, but I don't think he's here to hurt me because he asked me for a drink, which is one of the nicest things. And if he knew this whole time that I had these husband issues and all this kinds of stuff, I'm like, what's the deal here? What's the deal? The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're correct. You have no husband. You've had five. And the one who is with you now is not your husband. What you said was true. And she's like, I know, I, I lived it. I know it's true. Thank you, you know? And, and he's like, and, and so what's his angle? And I don't know, at this point, I kind of got to think that she's of the perspective that maybe he does want to help. Maybe he wants to give me something that I actually need that is not unhealthy, but is healthy. And so in typical human fashion, instead of saying, tell me more, help me to understand, give me that living water, she redirects again. So typical human. She says, uh, sir, that I, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she goes into this whole thing about worship and how my ancestors worshiped on this mountain and Samaritans worshiped on this mountain, yours worshiped on this mountain, and back and forth. She makes it an issue of worship. And it's like, wait a second, he just called you out for all the things that you're doing wrong and you're making this a, a worship issue? It's to, so typical. I see this all the time as a pastor. The closer and closer people get to Jesus, and I was guilty of this too. Not guilty, it's just a human reaction or human response. I think it's the kind of the darkness, the hurt inside of our hearts that says, I'm afraid of what it will mean to look at the hard parts of my life and come face to face with them. And in fact, it's not as hard as you think it is once you come to know Christ. But I did that in my life as well, coming closer and closer to Christ. That the closer and closer you get to him, the harder and harder you push back. And she's trying to find anything to redirect the conversation because she knows how close to the truth, how close to the pain he is getting. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus brings us back to God and brings us back to truth, which we need, we want, yet we avoid. It makes it an issue about worship, which Jesus addresses and said, it's actually a matter of spirit and truth. And then the woman says to him, you know what? You know what? 
I know that the Messiah is coming, the one that they're gonna call Christ, God's chosen one. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. You know what? I'm kind of done with this conversation. Uh, I'm just waiting for the Messiah to come. And then Jesus comes back. And I think she kind of knew. She suspected. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, it's me. I'm him. I'm that guy. I'm the Christ. I'm the chosen one. I'm from God. And that means I can see behind the curtains that you put up that you've put around your life, but I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Because you have lived so long not wanting people to see in and I've seen the whole time and yet I don't condemn you. I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna treat you as a strange neighbor. I'm gonna treat you as one loved by God. Because here is God in a body, and he knows how bad this woman is feeling inside, how, how not only morally she's failed, but just in love, the love in her life has failed her. And his first reaction, his first reaction from the beginning was what? Hey, you want to give me a drink? She's like, what's this about? And then his response is, his response is what? I have a gift for you. There's a gift for you. It's, it's so Christmassy. God gave. And the gift is me. And not because I'm so great, I mean I am, but the gift is here. I am here not to condemn you, but to love you and die for you and give you a new life of living water that everything you thirst for will be quenched. He's, he's given a really powerful analogy, I think it's really powerful, of, of, a, uh, of a plant. And, and we are all seeds. And you put us in soil, and what happens if a seed is put in like a pot of soil or moist soil? It's gonna sprout. But to go from here, this stage, to become a plant, what do you need? You need water, right? You need sun, you need nutrients to mature and reach the fullness of your potential, your fullness of your life in this world. And there's a lot of ways to feed a plant. As there is a lot of ways to feed our lives, isn't there? You can grow and build yourself in a lot of different ways. Financially, one of the most easiest to understand because it's just math. You can feed yourself financially with a lot of hard work, with moving up the company or organization, but that can also come with a cost, the cost of being perhaps an absent parent. You can, and is that growth? I mean, think about it, is that growth? You can feed yourself financially uh, by stealing or cheating. That's a way to do it. You can feed yourself financially by taking on a lot of debt. But is that growth? Or is that a reality that you're gonna need to hide behind curtains so nobody sees it? Nobody knows it's there. And sometimes you even convince yourself that it's not there because it's so 
buried. And that's normal. Everybody does this. Everybody has that. Everybody struggles like that. You can build your life, you can grow as a human being relationally, which you all should do. What did the woman at the well do? She fed herself. She fed her need for love and purpose and validation through men. Just as much as and as easily as men do with women, right? Just as often that men fill their validation as a human being, as a man, through the number of women they've had or have in their life. But is that real growth? Is that real life? Or is that something that you come to terms with eventually and you realize that's something you'd rather hide behind the curtain? And I see this all the time when people leave the church. Oh, my friends, I see it all the time. People leave the church. And I think in all the time I've been a pastor, I can think of maybe one who's actually sat down and said, hey, here's why we're leaving. And I wanna talk you through and I wanna explain and I wanna have a conversation. I wanna make sure we're good and that we have peace once that's happened. Otherwise, every single other one is you pull the curtain, you walk away and we're all on the other side wondering, where'd they, where'd they go? Where'd, did they move? Did they leave? They must have. Why do we have to pull the curtain like that? Because we're feeding ourselves. We're looking to feed ourselves in ways that are not healthy. We're trying to drink water that does not quench our thirst. A good rule of thumb for your life, if you have a decision or, you know, how you're behaving or acting or the things that you, you live or how you live, a good question to ask yourself is, when I do this behavior, when I make this decision, when I do this thing, does this leave me thirsty or quenched? And if it's of the world, it will leave you quenched. And if it is of God, it, or excuse me, if it is of the world, it will leave you thirsty. And if it's of God, it will quench your thirst. Because the woman at the well, the first man didn't satisfy her. So she thought, oh, well, if I just have, an, it's, it's just, just the person. So I'll find a second. Oh, it's just, it's just the person. I just got to find the right chemistry. I got to get the right sparks or whatever. And then it becomes a pattern. And the real problem isn't the men, it's her. It's you and it's, ah, and it's me. Not because we're not valuable, not because we're not worthy. We're just broken and hurting sometimes. And we look to grow as a plant in all the unhealthy places. And life will grow through those unhealthy ways, but usually in the wrong direction and not to the fullest. It's living, but it's not life. There's a difference. It's a life that you have to hide behind. The addictions you have to hide behind because the addiction will never satisfy. You crave power or attention or money, but when is it enough? I've never met somebody that said, hey, if I make this much, then I'm good. I'm totally satisfied for the rest of my life. I don't need anything more. I don't need any more power. I don't need any more notoriety. I don't need, this is how, I'm good. It's never enough. This is why we buy a bunch of things, especially around Christmas a lot of times. Is it because we actually want love, and it, but we're excited for that thing? And then we get it. And how long does that last? How long does that quench your thirst? How likely is it that half of the gifts from last year, you don't even remember what you got. And you don't even use it anymore. It was fun in the moment. It lasted for a moment. 
Or in relationships, how often I see spouses treat their spouse not as a partner, not as a helper, not as a, uh, a parent, a co-parent, but as a savior. And they look for their spouse to quench all the, the things they're struggling with. That never works out well. And I could go on and on and on, but at some point, you're gonna have to find something that satisfies, that brings you peace, even when the world around you, even in all the worldly metrics, you shouldn't be satisfied, but you're good. That's why those Jesus followers out there that you're just like, wow, those guys are crazy. They're like fanatical Jesus followers. Like they're good when things are really bad. They're just so positive. And it kind of irks me that they're so positive. Something's wrong with them. I mean, maybe, or it could be that they're satisfied in a way that you're not. And they get fed in a way that you're not getting fed. You could find Jesus like the woman at the well did. And you could accept him and let his spirit fill your life. Let God's love define you and validate you. God created the universe and all things validate you and your worth. And in a way, that's what started to begin in the life of the woman at the well. Because what did she do? She did something that your neighbors have never done nor will probably ever do. She marches back into the town with all of her neighbors there and everybody's looking out the window like, oh, what's she doing? Where's she going now? Is it another husband? You know, all that kind of stuff. And she starts yelling. She's like, neighbors, come out. You know, I gotta talk to you. I gotta talk to you. And they're like, oh, this is gonna be good. They go out there and, they, and she says, I, I just met this guy and he just told me everything I did and he didn't condemn me. He, y'all, Janice, he told me about the first wife. She's like, what, the first one? What are you talking about? No, and then he told me about the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that there was that many. And she's like, they, he told me all of it. And he cared for me and he loved me. And he told me that he was the Messiah, the chosen one. And there's something happening here. There's a thirst that is finally being quenched, a compassion that is finally healing the wounds that I've never experienced before. And she confessed that all to her neighbors. And then what happened to a bunch of her neighbors? Her neighbors came to terms with the fact, and they, they said this to her as you read the story. They said, hey, we, we, we don't need your story anymore because we've talked to him. We've seen him. He's probably told us things about ourselves. And we believe he's the savior. God come to earth God giving to us to free us. They weren't looking to be, their thirst to be quenched anymore. God's love was enough. His forgiveness was enough. Their new identity as loved by God fed her and grew her until she was no longer chained to those things that had held her back anymore and she was free. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus redeems. He frees us from what we're tied to. He frees us from being considered an outcast. And he doesn't just refurbish us. He makes us new. And, and many of her neighbors believed that and agreed with that. And they weren't thirsty anymore. Because that's what Christmas is. Christmas is that God gave so that there is room for everyone on the nice list. God gave 
and made room. You don't have to be on the nice list. It's totally your choice. God has never forced you to trust him, to put faith in him, to accept his love and be in your life and heart. But he wants to be. Because the nice list, being on the good side of things, isn't just about doing more good than bad. Because I think a lot of times we think if they're, you know, if getting to heaven is more about I got to do more good than outweigh the bad. No, that's, that's not Christianity. It's way better than that. It's way better than that. You get to live free, no longer hid behind the curtains, no matter how the scales weigh out. You don't have to be chained or hiding with the windows shut anymore, chained to your past or present thirsts because they don't define you. They don't control you anymore. You're filled with something so much better. See, Jesus is not about you just getting onto the nice list. It's not about making the nice list. It's about becoming nice. That's not really the goal, but it's not just about being Christian. It's about becoming a follower of Christ. It's not just about accepting love. It's about feeling that love and sharing that love with others. Christmas makes this story possible. When there's a baby in a manger, it's not just, and we tend to oversimplify Christmas, I think, a bit. It's just, well, there's a baby and there's wise men and there's shepherds and all this good stuff, and it makes us feel good and tell us that story, and that's it. The real consequence, the real power, the real transformation of Christmas is the woman at the well. Jesus' coming meant her life, which otherwise would not have changed as it doesn't happen in so many of our neighborhoods. That's why we have those neighbors that make us go. But because of Jesus and because of Christmas, her life changed. What did Jesus say? God has a gift here for you. It's for you to quench what is not being quenched in your life. Because God knows the truth and loves us anyways. It's called grace. All that stuff we hide behind the curtains. He doesn't come to condemn us for it or to judge you for it like all your neighbors do because they're watching you just like you're watching them. He offers love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and embrace that should define you, not anything else. And all of the secrets and all the lies and all the sin, the shame, and the guilt that you carry because we carry those. You don't have to just walk away or forget them because you can't forget them. You get to be forgiven for them and be known and loved. So stop stop trying this Christmas to fill your life and grow in all these unhealthy ways and feel like you have to hide those, those things. That's the red flag on Christmas is those things that you feel like you have to hide because that's a wrong source. That's not a source that lasts. It's not saying that they're bad. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with a lot of things in life. It's when we use them to fill the holes and the pits and the hardships and the pain in our life and they will never suffice. 
Our lives are like seeds planted. And if we grow them right, they will grow well. They will take root and they will even bear fruit. And a plant does this incredible thing is it begins to change the world around itself. It changes the world and it may even replicate and it may reproduce and it brings life to the world around it. That's what a plant does. And that's what Christ did for the woman at the well. That's what Christ did through his ministry and his death and resurrection. And that's what he calls us and we can do as well to the world around us. We can be the light like he was the light because we grow well and we impact the world around us. That's why Christmas is so great because not only is there room for everyone on the nice list, but it's a transformation we can experience getting onto the nice list. And that woman's story is not just an isolated moment. That's a moment that has happened for thousands and thousands and thousands of years since. And we get to celebrate that on Saturday. So not only do I hope that you're here, but I hope that maybe this year is the year that you start to pull back the curtain and realize God's love is for you is complete, even with everything that you're hiding even with everything that's holding you back. And it is the same light for your neighbors and all the things that they're hiding and that's holding them back. That's Christmas. If you would, bow your heads, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your son Jesus and his um, coming to earth. That it wasn't just a, a, a neat story. It wasn't just a moment in time with a star and angels and, and great songs and, and uh, you know, a great story but it signifies transformation. It signifies redemption. It signifies a new way of life, a new life for the world, for all of us, for each of us. And it is super hard. And we are super tempted to live life with the curtains closed and the windows shut and pretending that nobody can see what's hiding there. But it is a hard way to live. You can see the extreme of that. We can see the extreme of that in the woman on the well that your son met thousands of years ago. It's a difficult life to live. But that your son can also, for the woman at the well and all of us today and all of our neighbors and our family members, Love us, redeem us, forgive us, all of us, all of our lives, past and present, where we've been, what we've done, all of it. Because that's what you want. That's what every good father wants is for his children to be made whole, to know that they are loved, to not have to seek out affirmation and validation, worth anywhere other than in the warmth, the grace, and the truth that comes from a good father. And so Lord, help us this week, today, right now, this Christmas, to accept that love to remember that love that perhaps we've forgotten and to lean and trust in it, to lean onto it with our whole weights, all of our package, all the good and the bad, 
to rest in it. Because that's what you called us to. That's what you want for us. That's what you have given to us. In your name I pray.